Dr. Robert Malone is a medical doctor who is perhaps one of the most qualified individuals to talk about the mRNA vaccine technology as he is credited as one of the original inventors. He holds 10 patents. His published works have over 7,000 clinical citations, and he's worked in the field of clinical research, advising, and understanding how products move from research into market. He has been one of the most outspoken voices speaking his truth from his own integrity and his own medical and scientific perspective. And in this podcast, we talk about the psychodynamics of what he refers to as fifth generational warfare, which is actually the term of when warfare no longer involves kinetic transfer of force or violence like traditional war, but is actually a war of the mind. We start there, then go into his story as he followed the research, as he looked for alternative ways that you could treat COVID-19 infection, ultimately receiving the vaccine based upon his own faith in the system, and then feeling betrayed by a system that no longer was serving the people and has since been one of the most outspoken voices actually trying to share the truth as he sees it from his perspective. We share a detailed analysis of what might be occurring to people experiencing adverse effects of vaccination and adverse effects of COVID infection. And finally, finishing with a message of hope that there are treatments and that there are processes underway that whether you are suffering from long COVID or suffering from conditions brought on by the vaccinations, that there is hope and that there is always a way forward. This is a very important and powerful podcast with Dr. Robert Malone, MD. But before we get started, a word from our sponsors. First up, we have Redwood Outdoors. So if you guys have been following me for a while, you know that sauna is an integral part of my life. Hot, cold requires the hot as well as the cold. And for the hot, one of the best options you can do is to get a dry sauna. And Redwood Outdoors makes one of the most beautiful saunas I've ever seen. I have one set up in my backyard. And ultimately, I have it pretty close to my own plunge pool. And I go back and forth between the sauna and the cold. And this becomes one of the reasons I think why these last few years have been the healthiest years of my life. So this is one of the most well-known and best brands on the market for saunas. I bought one in 2021, long before Redwood was a sponsor of the show. And it's just beautiful, you know, and they were super helpful when, uh, when we needed some support with the different assembly and pieces. And I think once you guys take a look at what these saunas look like, and once you really understand how awesome it is to have a sauna in your life, uh, I think you're going to want to check this out. So go to redwoodoutdoors.com, use the code AMP250 for $250 off on orders of $3,500 or more. Once again, redwoodoutdoors.com, Use the code AMP250 for $250 off on orders of $3,500 or more. And finally, we have Onnit. And I want to spend this time talking about the four different types of Alpha Brain that Onnit is currently offering. Now, for those of you who aren't aware, Alpha Brain was Onnit's flagship. It was the revolutionary nootropic formula tested twice in double-blind clinical trials and shown to be effective in helping improve focus and general cognitive function. So whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's studying or podcasting, it's something that you can put in your tool belt to help elevate your consciousness. But now we have four different iterations. And of course, there's the original 
capsuled alpha brain. And one of the advantages that I love about the original formula is the inclusion of cat's claw. Cat's claw is really long-term, highly neuroprotective. And so it's a very well-rounded brain formula. And then there's the instantized version, which comes in these little packets that are delicious that you can mix in water. Now, I typically bring those when I travel and you have the option. You can either drink it fast and get the full dose of original alpha brain immediately or drink it slow if you have a longer, more drawn-out day where you want to spread the effects out over an hour, two hours, just mix it in your water bottle. And again, it tastes awesome. So that's also an advantage. Then there's the alpha brain ready to drink shots. And you just rip the cap and drink the alpha brain. And it has a slight modification to the formula in that it includes a little bit of caffeine. And caffeine and alpha brain pair brilliantly together. So this is going to pick up your energy as well as giving you the cholinergic boost that alpha brain is known for. And then there's the Cadillac, which is alpha brain black label. Alpha brain black label has a couple different advantages. One is a full dose of mecunipurians, which increases and up levels the availability of dopamine in the brain, which is great for modulating your mood into a much more positive state. Then there's a full, full dose of phosphatidylserine, which has a host of different benefits. Of course, there's the nutritional mushroom lion's mane and a variety of different ingredients that we put together. It took us over 10 years to develop a formula that was worthy of carrying the alpha brain name and being significantly different. And we did it with alpha brain black label. So that's a brief explanation of the four different types of alpha brain. So if you're interested, check it out. Go to onit.com slash Aubrey and save 10% on all of the different alpha brains. And now an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Robert Malone, MD. Robert, thanks for being here. My pleasure. Yeah. And thanks for taking the time. Of course, of course. Yeah, so this is, a, this is a very interesting moment because it feels like there was a huge wave and a huge surge of pro-narrative kind of support that was really hard to stand out against it because you just got a massive barrage. But my feeling is, is that it's softening and somehow conversations are starting to be a little bit more acceptable. The vehemence of the anti-side, from my own perspective, seems to be, they seem to be losing energy a little bit. It's almost like they're starting to get fatigued trying to fight a battle that ultimately is unwinnable. And you may be experiencing still the full force of empire, <laughs> empire's well guns put. and cannons facing towards you. Well put. Yeah. Um, uh, my gut reaction is from your lips to God's ears. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Should it be so? Um, I, I thought last spring we were going to hit this moment. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's almost a full year. Uh, and I've, I've grown accustomed to uh, being very cautious about underestimating our opponents. Yeah. Um, uh, they are very well capitalized. They are very dug in. Uh, this is not a uh, fly-by-night, uh, spur-of-the-moment action. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have incredible resources. Sure. This is, this is, I mean, from the classic archetypal myth, this is 
the empire. Exactly this is the empire. Right. This is the empire. <laughs> and and then there's the resistance who are outgunned, outmanned. There's hardly any chance. And they need to fly the X-Wing into the Death Star and f- find that direct hit that actually just unravels the whole thing. And I guess that leads me to the first question, which is if you had to say, all right, what is the what is the direct hit? What is that first inarguable lie. Now, of course, you wrote the book, Lies My Government Told You, told me. What is that? What is the one thing that you could point to that people just can't argue with that could start to soften this idea that everything the government's saying is true, everything that pharma is doing is for our best interest, Nobody's ever asked me that question. Uh, So I have to kind of process it. And I'm sure whatever I say now, uh, tomorrow morning when I get in the shower, I'm going to say, oh, dummy, why didn't you remember that thing? (laughs) Sure. Uh, let me think. What what could really turn the tide? I think that the upcoming drop from Twitter uh, that has been delayed. Uh, people call it the Fauci files or whatever. Mm-hmm. That's supposed to. We're we're now recording in February of 2023. Just to put a timestamp mm-hmm. uh, in what is it? The s- second week now in February. And uh, w- many of us had anticipated that this drop might have occurred in January or even in late December, and still we're, we're sitting here waiting. And uh, Musk has stated that the problem is that whoever he is authorized to process this information uh, hasn't been able to schedule their trip out to the West Coast Uh um, and he hasn't disclosed, you know, is this Alex Berenson, who is this mystery person that has to, that it that has such an important schedule that they can't break off to go uh, <laughs> uh, do this this information drop that potentially is going to blow the world open? Um, that could do it. And uh, in that, and so in that, what you're what you're surmising, it might prove even beyond what's already been shown, collusion between the government and Twitter to silence dissident voices and or it goes beyond that topics uh-huh. that they're sensitive to. So what are the, what are the topics that, and this is just a hypothesis. I mean, there's a number of things that could drop. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm about to travel to London to support a bunch of, uh, members of parliament that are, uh, now raising the question more actively about what's happened. It could, it could pop in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. Um, before it pops uh, from Silicon Valley. Uh, but, but the truth is coming. It's, it's, uh, um, it's relentless. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you look at something like, let's say, let's say we're showing, and this is you know, ultimately what we found. I think Brett Weinstein's focused on this when he's tried to isolate what he wanted to really hammer home is the suppression of vitamin D th- therapy and supplementation, right? He's like, this is an old story. It's an old story. But like, so for him, his idea was like, look, if you just get this, it's absolutely absurd. There's no way that it couldn't help. And there's no way that it could hurt. So if you're suppressing it, you have to have an alternate motive. But they've kept up, they've kept up a whole line that overdosing of vitamin D is toxic. They've actively promoted that. Um, and uh, it, it is it patently absurd. You cannot, after, after all we've seen over the last three years, you cannot underestimate the absolute lack of any morality 
on the part of these people that are that are promoting these false narratives. They there are no boundaries. Right. There are no guardrails. They will do or say anything in order to achieve their objective. This is one of the things that for me is most shocking, and it's it it it's got a direct socket into the psy wars that we've all you know been experiencing without even knowing it. This fifth generation warfare, but mm-hmm. we are in. I mean, it's it's like. Uh, um, you know, every, everything that all the conspiracy theorists ever said about um, information wars uh, is all being validated in real time. We've all experienced it, and it absolutely has been deployed by the militaries of the Five Eyes Alliance in their respective mm-hmm. nations against their own populace. And they will, like, vitamin D is a great example. Ivermectin is another example yeah. where uh, they, they will do anything and then when legally confronted, they come up with these weasel excuses uh, like the FDA did when, he, when finally they were legally confronted about the ivermectin story in that infamous tweet um, using the term y'all, which was clearly pejorative and targeted at, at uh, Southerners, um, uh, you know, accusing them all of eating horse paste. And did you know that ivermectin is for horses? Which, of course, is intrinsically um, absurd. Right. Uh, um, but... But there's no, there's no self-awareness. There's no apology. There is no, um, uh, uh, there, there's, there, and there are no boundaries. There are absolutely no guardrails. They will do or say anything in order to reinforce the narrative that they're told to reinforce. Right. And what else, what else do you think can actually like, because as you said, they're squirmy. There's no boundaries. They're willing to say, do anything. They'll be, they'll be a chameleon. They'll be, they'll fit in some way. They'll find a way to, if not argue the point, they'll argue against ad hominem against the person who's making the point, and then misdirect. They have a myriad of strategies. A bunch of strategies. But if there is like other other things where you feel like, all right, I see you, you, you know, kind of ephemeral chameleon mercurial ghost that's trying to elude me but i'm going to pin you down like ghostbusters right here in this thing let me pin you on this okay, thing you you just used a metaphor that is absolutely appropriate um and uh you you may or may not know the fourth uh army psyops division out of force fort bragg um is a derivative of the ghost army uh, ghost, the ghost in the machine is absolutely a, a dominant narrative and metaphor in this uh, fifth generation warfare psyop space. Mm-hmm. They, they, that, that's, that's key. Uh, to do it effectively, and it has been done very effectively on all of us for the last three years, you never know who the opponent is. You never know who the antagonist is. If you, if you become aware of who that antagonist is, They've failed. Right. Um, that's, that's the world we're in. And, when, and it, is, it is so challenging to operate in that environment because it, it destroys the very fabric of society because you never know who you can trust. Mm-hmm. It's like everybody surrounding you. Um, it, there's no boundaries between uh, military and civilian now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely none. Uh, and what, along these lines, I'm sure you're familiar with who Marshall McLuhan is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Marshall McLuhan predicted this. He said the next world war, in the next world war was going to be an information war and there would be no boundaries between military and civilians. Here we are. Yeah. 
Um, it is in when you when you dive into that world and really try to process it. Michael Flynn has a new book. There's a great one on fifth generation warfare. People get confused. They think it's talking about cell towers. No, this is not. <laughs> this is not that yeah, 5G, not. <laughs> right? Um, right. Uh, that's that you can get as an ebook. Uh, if you if you dive into the logic of this space, it is incredibly mind bending and twisted. It's very very hard to uh, even even process a world in which um, everything is uh, potentially a weapon. Yeah. And so in older forms, more primitive forms of warfare, I mean, empire has been at its business since the beginning of recorded time, right? The desire for power, the desire for hierarchy, the desire to make some people extremely powerful, other people basically a servant class to generate wealth for those you know, people who are more powerful. This is by nature, the nature of empire. Also the hubris and condescension to think that they know best for everybody else. All of these factors and qualities of empire without actually having to name the people who are participating because actually, honestly, there's a little bit of empire in all of us, right? It's like a virus that's infected every individual to a certain degree. It's just some people are really actively hosts, for this kind of parasitic mentality. Interesting way to think about it as hosts in a parasite. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you that we all have it in our souls. Uh, we all have the risk of narcissism, malignant narcissism, which I think uh, uh, over the last a few decades we've glorified. Yeah. Um, you know, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's, that's like an embodiment of malignant narcissism. It's like the worst advice ever. Yeah. <laughs> and, and in terms of, of the soul, of the spirit, yeah. it, is, it just is like battery acid. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, on that spectrum of narcissism, we have those who learn to not have empathy. Those would be defined as sociopaths. And we have those who intrinsically, biologically, from when they were born, lack empathy for others. And those would be psychopaths. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think in what we are living through in many ways is the consequence of enabling a culture in which we define human value using the language of economics mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and technology now increasingly. Uh, and uh, so we are, we are perceived and treated as economic units. Uh, and we have in our organizational structures glorified management styles that are intrinsically psychopathic. Right. And this is what we get. Yeah. Yeah. And then regressive tactics to regress us to kind of the baser ideas of tribalism, where there's only absolutely. empathy for the for your in group and absolute you know scapegoating and lack of empathy for everybody in the out group, the deplorables, the whatever you want to call them, the yeah. the the you know domestic terrorists. Another word like saying that basically you're you're the good ones, they're the bad ones. I mean, it's not and the and the unvaxxed. Yeah, exactly, and, and and all of the ways that you do it. And frankly, the other side, 
you know, also uses dehumanizing language. And so I think that's also something to become aware of, like the sheep. Well, if you're saying that dehumanizing is a problem, you literally can't call somebody an animal and not be dehumanizing them. It's the definition of dehumanizing. Yeah. No, you're, you're touching on... So this is an, another part of what makes this landscape so challenging uh, is these normal... Uh, human dynamics of us versus them and this tendency to do exactly what you just said. Mm -hmm. But um, at what's, what I find both fascinating and disheartening is that um, there, there, there are forces at play in this discussion, let's call it, that's, that's dynamic that's going on right now that uh, lead both sides towards the extremes. Yeah. So uh, let's say, just because, let's say we're talking about um, the, the group of individuals that are opposing the dominant narrative. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm trying to choose neutral language. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, within that, there are those who assert that um, there is no virus. There are those that, that, that assert that um, this, from the get-go, was a intentional depopulation effort mm -hmm. uh, and assert it quite forcefully. And if, if one does not buy into that, then you're defined as um, controlled opposition for the other side. Right. It's, it's, and you're, you're really nailing it in terms of this is basic human behavior. I wrote an essay about this a number of months ago in which I, I made uh, a lot of references to the French Revolution and mm -hmm. the Jacobins, right? And there you had Madame Guillotine, you know, as the decider, right? right? And, and, uh, and the tripwire was really, uh, the bar was really low. Uh, if you were not sufficiently radical, it was off to Madame Guillotine. Mm -hmm. And what was fascinating about that I mean, there's a bunch of things that, that can be learned about these kinds of dynamics that we're encountering right now. If you take a moment to go back and read about the French Revolution, French Revolution and Robespierre and all that. But um, uh, as, as that didn't last very long, it was so bloody. And they kept pushing the bar tighter and tighter to more and more radical. And so this is the idea that the, these movements eat themselves. Exactly. Because you start to isolate yourself and more and more so into a corner. So this is part of what makes this so tortuous. I mean, the, the terrain here in fifth generation warfare is really, really twisted and complicated. So now enter the disruptors, the chaos agents. Okay. So these are, these are um, from one side or the other operating as if they are from the opposite side, so they are true infiltrators that are busy promoting narratives that often one of the characteristics is, is they will mix truth with crazy. And then people will assimilate that package and then they get attacked as illegitimate because they, they believe in Sasquatch or right. UFOs right. or whatever the thing is, right? right. Um, and, and so it's a strategy to deflect um, so confusion and uh, enable uh, groups or individuals within that to be delegitimized and to turn 
the members of those groups against each other. They sow so much confusion that people are never sure what's real and what isn't real. They, they, you know, the average person that isn't um, deeply grounded in a fact-based assessment is left in a, in a landscape where there's no, there's no solid ground. They don't, they don't know, there's no way for them to readily discern what is true and what is false in a landscape where everything is controversial. And so they're left um, uh, questioning everything. Um, and I'm, I'm not going to share the name, but a, a very prominent person that is legitimately an anti-vaxxer. Uh, that, that term has been so weaponized. But, right. but a very prominent individual um, uh, um, makes the point, he made the point to me that um, the, the proper way for uh, Joe Public, I don't want to say the average person because that has implications, you know, just the, you know, normal, normal folks. Yep. Uh, to operate when they touch on this space is they should assume that as a, as a default that someone is controlled opposition until they can discern otherwise. And the problem with that logic. Okay. This is not my logic. Okay. The problem with that logic is in my experience and probably I suspect yours from the little bit I know about you is my experience has been that I can never receive trust unless I give trust. And yeah. so if I move, if I, if I, every encounter that I make with another colleague, I'm constantly mistrusting them and questioning their legitimacy. I can never form a trust a bond with them. Con the idea that everyone's destroys in, yeah. community. The idea that everyone's controlled opposition is the most effective controlled opposition. Oh, precisely. <laughs> you know, and this is, and th so these concepts, they're complicated and the psychodynamics are particularly complicated, especially you start thinking about internal dynamics like the sunk cost fallacy. You have this high proportion of the population that's already gotten vaccinated, vaccinated their children. So the desire to believe that they did the right thing is extremely high. Plus, they've already shit on all of their other neighbors Which and everybody who did Which is particularly true with physicians. Right. Because then they're the onus. And also all of those gentle nudges from these, you know, authorities, whether they're hospitals or whether it's a medical board and their sometimes own selfishness. Sometimes not so gentle. Sometimes not so gentle. Maybe that, that moment where they had the opportunity to step forward with courage, you know, as you yourself had done and say like, no, something's not right here. Or the opportunity to go, you know, all right, all right, you know, I'll, I'll kind of follow it. And they have to look at themselves and acknowledge whether they flinched in the moment of truth. And so there's all kinds of complicated things that, that people have to deal with. And I think that's also one of these threads that's kind of moving through here is people are having to come to a reckoning with themselves. And some people are not quite ready for that yet. The most courageous are, you know, someone like, Ed Dowd, who I recently had on, had on a podcast, mm -hmm. got the first, you know, got the first vaccine shot and then had his moment of being like, hmm, something's wrong here, you know, and then pulled back, acknowledged it. And I know several people like that that are like, all right, you know, I bought in at this point. At this point, it seemed like the cost benefit was right. The information I had available was, was here. So now I by, by definition in that extreme uh, cohort, uh, none of those people can be trusted. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. Including me. Okay? Yeah. Because I got two jabs, uh, Moderna, 
uh-huh. and I was significantly damaged. I still um, am trying to manage my uh, hypertension and some of the other side effects I got. Um, and uh, this is thrown at me almost on a daily basis. One of the things that um, kind of, this is, this is my morning thought waking up this morning, is uh, how much hate there is. It's, it's, we've, we've somehow developed a culture where it is cool and trendy to hate. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I, so I'm cruising down the boulevard here to get to Miami and Bob Marley is going on. And I'm saying to myself, could Bob Marley even exist? Could he come to pass in the culture that we have right now? with the messaging that he had. I don't know that he could. I don't know that, that, that Bob Marley could become a major cultural figure in this world that is so driven by hate and animosity that we're surrounded by right now. Well, there's been such a radical debasement of our own self, intrinsic self-worth and self-value. So we've been isolated to our separate self, the separate self which only knows itself in comparison with other people. And so those people who you can make lower than you and however low you make them is relatively however high you can be on your own scale because we've forgotten our intrinsic, our intrinsic worth, us as carriers of a divine spark. Thank you. And, like, and when you realize that, then the need to hate anybody else just evaporates. Thank you. And that's, now you're touching on the part, you know, the book says, in the better future coming. Um, I, 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 this is not being Pollyannish. I truly believe that humanity has untapped potential, uh, and that we can't get there. We are obstructed from fulfilling that potential by some of these social organizational, um, norms that we've come to accept, uh, and that, the the possible better future that we might strive for is uh, one in which we have that vision of what is the potential of humanity. Um, uh, how could it be fulfilled? Uh, what what would be required to enable the full synergy of the human species? Uh, and um, I think that's the potential better future mm-hmm. is, is if we can come through this, all of the trauma uh, that we've experienced and somehow get to a point where we say, no, I'm not going to buy into that stuff right. anymore. Um, it's, it's a very um, optimistic, I hope not Pollyannish approach. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's like the boil is, the boils are coming to the surface. And this is the opportunity that all of us have to actually see this, the, it's given us a glimpse into empire, empire, which has always been under the surface. You know, you look at, and of course these, you find the refutations of this, but there's files released showing the collusion of, with the CIA and Oswald in the JFK, in the JFK assassination, right, the, classic, recent, recent bomb. the classic conspiracy theory. You start to see that empire most likely has been working under the surface the whole time, you know, whether it's MLK, MLK or JFK uh, my, or whoever else. My whole life, this, for me, the, uh, that Tucker um, reveal, uh, Carlson, 
mm-hmm. regarding uh, the Warren Commission files in JFK uh, was a bombshell because it's one of my first memories as a young child is the assassination. It's three or four, you know, it's you, that, that you don't remember much. Uh, but, but that one was a big one. Yeah. And so that's empire, you know, presumably at work, which has always been at work. It's been at work since the days of the Caesars. And then the Caesars became the popes because the Caesars couldn't conquer the known world anymore, but the popes certainly could. And this whole, you know, that's, is a whole other different thread that it goes on. But to the way I see it is empire has always been under the surface, but so cleverly masking itself under the guise of moral purity, under the guise of we're here for you, we're doing the right thing, we're the loving, we're the loving mother, papa, whatever else that is. But now in this moment, it's like, oh, like, you know, well played on some part, but also overplayed as well, because you've exposed yourself too much. You've gone too far and there's too much awareness. There's too many other alternative media outlets like this small one and Joe's big one and, and all of the other ones in between that are actually starting to get information. We are out. breaking through. Yeah. But, but you're, you're uh, framing this as empire. Um, another one of the parts of my journey over the last few years has been being taken into various Christian communities, which for some reason have been particularly resistant to Matthias Desmet's a mass formation process or hypnosis process. And I mm-hmm. think it has a lot to do with there being communities that have maintained integrity, but it has to do with other things. They, I'm sure they would, if I could speak for those communities, they would be saying, no, we're not, we're not seeing the face of empire. We're seeing the face of evil mm-hmm. and it has a name, uh, the devil. Um, you can say that the devil is a metaphor or you can say that the devil is an actual thing, sure. but, uh, I think that many many would say this is more than just empire. This is true evil uh, that that we're encountering, mm-hmm. and it's hard. You know, I, I Matthias came out to our farm and hung out with some buddies of mine, and uh, we did a roundtable thing. Unfortunately, the audio was horrible, and so we could never broadcast it. But but Matthias went deep into a lot of his thinking about spiritualism, and. Uh, he makes the point that um, almost everybody he's encountered has become more spiritual. That f- for those of us that are, let's say, awake, for want of a better word, mm-hmm. that are that have taken this journey and been aware or become aware of of the manipulations and other things, many of us have become more spiritual during that process. And I count myself and my wife as among those. Sure, uh, it's really hard. I for a long time I wouldn't. I wouldn't talk about the WEF. Um, I just thought that was crazy talk until I read the book, The Great Reset. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wouldn't talk about things spiritual because they weren't within my domain of expertise. It was kind of outside of, you know, I'm supposed to be in this little molecular virology track, as Bannon likes to say, stay in your lane. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, it's hard not to really encounter and process and run down all these rabbit holes um, and not come away saying there's something really dark here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's, I think we're talking about, so, okay, so how do you define empire from an archetypal standpoint? Does it go all the way to 
what some would call the archons or some would call, you know, the, the devil, or there's lots of many names for dark forces that exist within and also without as above, so below inside of us. But I like the name empire because it doesn't put a lot of other yeah, I've never things heard into of, it. Uh, I've never heard of that construct before. Yeah. And, so and a Mahayana I think Buddha, it's, it's nice because it's a little more neutral. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got it from a Mahayana Buddhist uh, named John Churchill who likes this terminology and tracks empire, like the history of empire all the way through. And it's been really valuable for me to see it's, see the way that it works and see how, you know, in my mind, empire is like a parasite and we're like the host. And this, this parasitic virus gets in and it infects people and they don't even know that they're infected. And the beauty of that is just like in any movie where there is a there is an alien force or an evil force or call it a dark sorcerer or an alien and they infect some of your friends in your group and those friends start doing horrible, deplorable things. They're eating somebody's face over there and then all of a sudden the hero strikes and hits the heart of empire and the spell is broken. Even if you have blood on your face from eating somebody else and your the spell is broken, there's like, there's an instant forgiveness. It's like, hey, like, I know that you were under the spell of this parasitic, this parasitic force and like, welcome back. Like, we'll welcome you back home. We're not going to judge you forever. We're not going to give you the guillotine. Can I riff off of that? Yeah, please. I think you're touching on something that, that is right adjacent to um, something I've really been trying to promote. Uh, Whether or not, uh, let's say our opponents, those that are trying so hard to reinforce this narrative or sell vaccines or whatever it is that floats their boat. Um, hard to say, you know, who is the puppet master? Is, right. You know, by the very nature of fifth generation warfare, we don't know who the damn puppet master is, <laughs> right, right? Right, right? By definition. Um, uh, so we may never know. Uh, but we absolutely seem to be moving into a cultural moment globally where, uh, as you said in the opening, people are beginning to grapple with uh, what has happened here, what has been done. Um, And uh, um, I forget who it was, the the Hollywood guy that came out and spoke to Russell Brand about it, Um, uh, you know, basically seeking forgiveness or absolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're hearing more and more of this and uh, those, again, alluding to that kind of arm of the opposition to the narrative uh, that, that wants to be more extreme, um, uh, want, seems to repeatedly say, these people should never be forgiven. See what they've said. See what they've done to us. See what they've done to my children. Uh, and they seem to want to hate. There's so much anger. Right. Uh, and they and there's and there's so much hate as we were discussing um and I what I which is by the way one of the reasons why I found the mass formation thesis so powerful is is it it was a pathway towards enabling people to come to terms internally and externally with what what they were happening and the damage to their families and their worker networks and colleagues and other things. Um, One of the things I I really try to say repeatedly now in, in, you know, whatever speech podcast, whatever I give is the idea that we have all been subjected to the most powerful 
coordinated, uh, globally harmonized, military-grade propaganda campaign in the history of the Western world. And it's been going on for three years. And there's a fraction of the population that has either kind of become aware and, and um, of what, what is happening, or they were never, they, they had some psychological characteristic that made it so that they were impervious. Mm-hmm. But by definition, these are highly refined psychological warfare tools that were deployed on the entire population and a large fraction of the population succumbed to them. Uh, should we hate them? Or are they the victims? Right. And those of us that are awake now or were awake originally and never succumbed, uh, those became awake or were originally resistant to the effects, um, should we hate those that, that were um, compromised by these weapons of war that were deployed on them? I argue no, which the pushback no. is... Definitely um, no. Yeah. Yeah. There are brothers and sisters. Absolutely. There are brothers and sisters. And furthermore, it, it serves the interests of the opponent. Let's call it empire, going yeah. with your language, to, to exploit that and keep us divided. Yeah. You're just playing right into their battle plan if you refuse. To, and that is absolutely not to say that we should forgive those who are the true perps, the ones that have really propagated this knowingly on all of us. Uh, that's, I mean, there, there's yeah. some boundaries here. Of course, of course. People have to, people, people have to deal with the consequences of their actions and their decisions, you know, but ultimately you can do both. You can have people have to reckon with the, with the consequences of their actions and also be in forgiveness. You know, it's like you can send someone to jail and forgive them at the same time. You know, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You know, it's, and I think that's, it's again, blending spirituality with modern, you know, justice system and et cetera. And I see it as consistent with the mission of being a physician. Um, I'm, I'm in this to heal. If I wanted to spend my life making weapons of war, I could have done that. Sure. It's what my father did. If I wanted to spend my life, um, doing, uh, intelligence and psyops, I could have followed the path of my father-in-law. Mm. I chose not to. And um, uh, I see it as um, a unique opportunity, this, this weird situation I find myself in, absolutely not asked for, um, uh, not expected, but here it is, uh, in this position of having a voice in all of this. Yeah. Um, that... It, it provides a unique opportunity for somebody in their early 60s at the end of their career to, to do something that's healing and therapeutic on a massive scale. Mm. <laughs> How cool is that? <laughs> some would say that that's, you know, that's, that's why some of us are here to be able to make a, make a difference, to make a stand. I mean, how, how beautiful is it to actually know that you're fighting for something that's meaningful and fighting for something that comes, you know, from the authority of love itself, you know, like there's something really, really beautiful about that, that transcends the fear of attacks and getting canceled and all of the different weapons, because in fifth generational warfare, the guillotine and the bullets are not readily used. I'm not saying that they're never used and that they can't be used, but actually 
we can speak and what's going to be thrown at us mostly is pixels, pixels on a screen, pixels in a print, pixels on a fucking whatever, the coming through with voice on a TV, whatever. But it's, it's not the guns and the jackboots and the, and the, you know, black hoods that made people disappear that empire has used for so many years. And that's the encouraging part is yes, the sophistication of empire and fifth general generational warfare is intense. However, we all got a place on the battlefield now. This, we got a chessboard right here. This wasn't planned, but we all have pieces on the board now. And they can't just wipe them off. So that's, I think, the other really important empowering message in this uh, that I also thank you for bringing that out. I, I find so useful. Uh, let me take a step back. There's a cohort of people, the vaccine injured, and by extension, the vaccine dead. There are, you know, wherever you are in this spectrum, it's hard to deny that there are people that have died from this product. Uh, you had Ed Although Dowdell. some will, some will try. Uh, yeah, but, but I, I think for the rational actor that's right. objective, it's hard to deny it. So the, the vaccine injured in particular have had this amazing gaslighting, this um, complete denialism. Here they are, um, subjected to the, the damages associated with this product. And they are surrounded by friends, family, physicians, society that are all messaging to them, you are mentally ill. Mm -hmm. What you believe you've experienced, we deny that you've experienced. And furthermore, we infer that you are mentally ill because you are even raising these issues. Right. Um, those people are the kind of the, in a way, I believe a metaphor for the damage to all of us. The the truly, and I'm going to say this um, carefully. They are victims. There's no question they are victims. As are we all. Sure. And yet we can choose to not define ourselves by our, as victims. Yes. We can choose to not define ourselves as having been victimized. In a battlescape of fifth generation warfare, we can choose to be warriors, to be empowered. And that's, that's the power that I wanted to pull out, you know, moving off of your comment just a moment ago, yeah. that I think is so key, is that if people can assimilate the logic, strategy, and tactics of, of this new battlefield landscape, uh, they, can, they can become empowered. Mm -hmm. But they have to set aside all of these things that we, have, we so cherish. The idea that there's right and wrong, that and there is intrinsically right and wrong, but in this battlescape, those, those concepts of justice and right and wrong and boundaries and even, you know, traditionally in any warfare, in kinetic warfare, there are rules of engagement. In this, in this battlefield, there are no rules of engagement. Right. There's no division between military and civilian. It is all open season. It is complete warfare and information warfare and everything goes. They, they will do or say anything. And I think one of the challenges we so that's an opportunity Yes, uh, there's the other side be of that because, because also that means if there's no differentiation between 
military and civilian, that means that all civilians can also be militarized in a, in a way as well. Like and I we, said this. We, we uh, all I, get to be, we all get to stand on the battlefield. I kind of uh, blew some circuits, I think, when I gave the fifth gen warfare talk at, in Stockholm a couple of weeks ago. And they didn't want me to use the term warfare. The, the uh, Swedish are apparently very sensitive to language. Mm-hmm. Who would have not? You know, it's uh, the old, uh, you know, the Viking days are gone. I can tell you that. Uh, and um, uh, they, they didn't want me to use the term warfare in the talk for the title of the talk. And I was like, that's what it's called. I mean, yeah. but you know, they, so that, that was kind of the baseline attitude. And I hit them hard uh, with, the, with the messaging. I followed Asim Mahatra, who, who kind of gave us a, a good look at what he's experienced. Uh, and, then, and then I came in and hit him hard with what we've all um, been subjected to and experienced. And then gave this message that they can all be warriors. And I use the example, um, this uh, 4th PSYOPs division out of Fort Bragg has 800 soldiers. And I said, there's 1,300 people in this audience. If every one of you decide you want to be warriors instead of victims, um, you outnumber those soldiers. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we referenced it with uh, my friend and my tech here, uh, Derek. We were talking about Carlos Castaneda and he was for all of his potential <laughs> faults, all his potential faults as a, as a human being, um, there was a quote that came from Don Juan and said, we all have one fundamental choice to be ordinary or to be a warrior. And the warrior, as was translated in the Toltec language, was that one who stands for the true, the just, the beautiful, the right, both within, internally first, and externally. It's not the the toxic aspects of war, which is death and the boots and the guns and, the, and all of that. It's about an internal stance that you take. So were you aware of how important Carlos Castaneda was in my uh, early formation of no. my sense of the world? No, I mean, me too. That was my, he was, that was my first teaching, was the teachings of Don Juan, that kind of Toltec framework that so actually that, printed early. I mean, you, you, I don't know if you, what, podcast you've listened to when I talk about luminous beings and, uh, you know, um, consulting your death, I'm directly referencing. <laughs> right on, right on. Uh, and one of the things, so it's, this is a bizarre world. I mean, sometimes you just have to step back and say, that can't have been a coincidence. Yeah. So I, we, we have a buddy who lives on Maui and also has a place on Fiji, uh, that has been traveling this path with us. I'll just leave it at that. He, rem- prefers to remain anonymous. Uh, it's a good friend of Ed Dowd's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, uh, his best friend is a guy named Bruce Wagner. Uh, they both went to Hollywood High together. Uh, Bruce was one of Carlos Castaneda's last disciples. And uh, so I've had a chance to, to, we spent a lot of time on a boat in the Med uh, last summer together. And I had a chance to really um, kind of test with him, did I understand things correctly? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, he, he uh, it, was, it was just an absolute joy to get feedback from someone uh, that had spent a lot of time with Castaneda. And, and, uh, and then out of the blue, uh, in the early fall, I get this uh, brown paper package. Uh, and it's one of, Castaneda's last books uh, sent directly from his publisher 
leather bound edition and cool. signed um, from Bruce. What a gift. Yeah. Um, so amazing that we would uh, yeah. come together yeah, sure. and have that common link. Yeah. Interesting. In, in our formative, in our formative psychological framework. It is sure. absolutely the logic that guides how I approach science. Mm. I actually talked about it in the book. I don't know if it made it into the final version. Um, but uh, this idea of dividing the world into the known, um, the unknown knowable, and the unknown unknown yep. uh, is, is absolutely key to, to how I approach science um, in, in really everything. So speaking of this, this is, this is something that I wanted to touch on, and, and we touched on it earlier. You know, I've, I've seen, and again, I don't need to go into names, and, and uh, there's been one of the, you know, strongest anti-vax advocates that he was deplatformed time and time and time and time again. And then he got, in my mind, more radicalized to believe that there is no such thing as a virus in any category, under any circumstances. Viruses are just fiction from the very beginning and the whole thing is a sham all the way from the very start and as soon as he started promoting that you know his platforms have no longer been deplatformed which has been like really interesting for me to just look at and i'm not saying you know i'm not trying to make too and, many and i'm, and I'm not i'm that. not inferring just for the audience i'm not inferring who this person is based on what you've said so i have no preconceived notions of who the gentleman is or, mm -hmm. or gentlewoman uh um, but in the abstract, uh, I, I also observe, um, these anomalies. Another one that's readily observed, the Wikipedia, very aggressive Wikipedia editing, um, uh, the site Wikispooks, uh, which was down for a long time and is back up again, did a lot of tracking of who was doing a lot of that editing including in my own, so that's why I have a self-interest in it. But uh, Pierre Corey, anything having to do with ivermectin, pretty much all the docs uh, that have spoken out about this, but not all, uh, have been really aggressively edited uh, to, you know, cast shade on all of us. Uh, and almost all of that trafficking, editing trafficking, tracks back to a very senior Wikipedia editor that appears to work 24-7, seven days a week, uh, has a huge number of edits attributed to them, which in the Wikipedia ranking gives you more and more power to supersede any other edits, right. and appears to be uh, linked directly to MI5. Um, we're, we, we are, are in an environment where all of this stuff is, all information is heavily manipulated, but you can... Um, uh, I find it intriguing that there are those who uh, show some signs of being chaos agents, disruptors, who, and have put out uh, written material, being ambiguous intentionally, so that it can't be interpreted who I'm talking about, but have put out written material and have that's quite strong in its language, but nonspecific. And uh, there have been absolutely no edits. Um, uh, we have a, a friend, uh, Nick Hudson, I'll name the name, who is one of the founders of Panda. He's a little bit like Ed Dowd. He's a, he's a numbers guy, mm -hmm. investor. Uh, 
um, out of South Africa that really has been one of the key forces in that Panda group, that pandemic data analysis group out of South Africa that's done a fantastic job. And, and he speaks about uh, one of the ways that you can discern uh, their activities, the opponent, uh, the empire's uh, surrogates, or however you want to frame it, is, is you can find topic areas that are, t- that are sensitive. They're sensitive to those people that um, you can identify them because it's metaphorically akin to having an electric fence around that topic. And anytime you get close to that electric fence, you get a shock. The shock will come in the, in the form of a, uh, something printed in the New York Times or the Washington mm. Post or, or the Atlantic or Rolling Stone, or, or it'll come in the form of other uh, edits or pejoratives, or it can come in the form like with the recent uh, Project Veritas drops regarding Pfizer. There was this sudden burst of trolls and bots just, they just swarmed. Um, and now they're kind of gone away. Uh, um, and there's certain topics that trigger them. And when you see that, that that's your tell. And, and many people talk about this, you know you're over the target if the flat gets really heavy. Right. Is, an, is another right. metaphor for that right, as opposed right, right. to the electric fence, right? Um, we're, we're in this weird world and maybe it's one of the things that has been um, helpful for me is I've dealt with uh, true intelligence community people, CIA folk, for a very long time because they are all through the biodefense community. Um, and I've been formally introduced to them and introduced to their handlers. And so, you know, I'm not of that community, never have been, not been through that training, but I've been told what that training, they're all trained liars. Okay, they're really adroit at lying. They're very intelligent people that are very good at lying. And often they have these characteristics of lacking empathy uh, because it's hard to tell a good lie if unless you have that characteristic, sure. right? Um, and so in this kind of space, uh, you can't assume anything. And uh, you have to be extremely sensitive to the strategies that they use, like the limited hangout where they'll acknowledge this is true and then they'll add some other things that might be true but will distract you from the thing over here that they really don't want you to ask about or look. You have to be aware of all of these different ways of manipulations, psychological manipulation with information and language and everything else if you're you're to somehow triangulate what is reality. It is a bizarre landscape uh, in... um, I don't, I don't in any way pretend to have mastered it, but I'm learning. I'm learning fast. Yeah, and then I think that's what we're all, we're all getting, we're all getting real experience with, yeah. with what this is. So take us through, you know, you're someone who's, you know, you're someone who did take, and, and I apologize for not knowing this aspect of your biography, you must've missed it in some, but you did take two of these vaccines. So yep. you understood the technology probably better than anybody else at this point. And from your awareness at that point, you thought, all right. This is a reasonable, this is a reasonable idea that could potentially work and yield benefit and then realize like, oh shit, it's actually not a reasonable idea and something, something you've experienced. And I, and I got damaged. You right. got damaged. Okay, so, so, so what was your original thinking? And then what actually happened? Because I had Ed Dowd talking about all of the, you know, different claims from life insurance and the, and the 
deaths of unknown cause and then the attribution to sudden adult death syndrome. And all did, of he, this. did he disclose that I'm the one that sucked him into this whole thing in the first place? <laughs> he didn't, no. <laughs> yeah, so we did a, we did a protest um, on Maui long ago. Um, that was one of the biggest ones we've done, the docks. We had, it was like a third of the population, the whole bloody island were there, um, which is when I met dad at a dinner associated with that. Um, and he had written this thing, uh, the Malone Doctrine, with a couple other people from the island. And uh, it was all about integrity. Uh, and, and I said, I was amazed at it. I was like, why did you call it the Malone Doctrine? And, and the response was, it's all the things that were in the spaces between the lines of everything you've said and written. I was like, whoa, that's pretty heavy. Mm. Um, but it was actually Ed and his buddies that came up with all of that logic. And um, then Ed got into this world of the actuarial data. And I was like, Ed, you know, we gotta, we gotta get you out in front of the camera. Right. <laughs> and, and so I got him on Bannon and then he's just, he's just blossomed. Sure. Uh, it's it's really been a wonderful thing to see. Yeah. Um, so my journey. Uh, I started off from the stance of um, number one, fundamentally believing, you know, based on decades of experience, that there are certain rules about how you develop drugs and vaccines, um, and those are are uh, could not be violated. Mm-hmm. Uh, that to violate those rules would put me, if I did that as a clinical researcher, which is my niche, okay, clinical and regulatory and project management and that whole toolkit, uh, in, in federal, writing federal contracts, I'm really good at all that stuff. I've been, you know, learned it over decades. And, and I've always believed that there are, are rules and guardrails, and if I cross those, uh, and got a 483 warning letter or something, other action item from uh, action from the FDA, I would lose my ability to practice my profession. I would mm-hmm. essentially be blacklisted, which is what happens. Happens to pharmaceutical companies. Uh, and uh, that, that anytime me, I professionally was, had a client or was engaged in some sort of uh, business relationship with a company that was crossing lines, I would... Um, you know, complain, disclose, and if nothing, if it, it couldn't be corrected, I would get out. I would fire the client, leave the company, whatever. And I've kept a, a totally clean record in terms of any FDA activity. So that's where I was coming from, was believing that there's actually rules and they're actually enforced. Right. Uh, and and um, that the FDA was mostly guilty of bungling uh, fairly frequently, mm-hmm. uh, in, in a certain degree of incompetence and chronically compromised by the fact that they don't pay enough. And so they don't get the best of the best. And a lot of their hires lately have been foreign medical graduates for which English may not be their first language and all of that stuff. That's kind of my mental image of the FDA going into this. Which abides by like the Hanlon's razor principle, which do not ascribe malice to that which can be explained by ignorance. And you had nothing to believe that there was more than some some ignorance in certain places, bungling, as you say. Uh, So so that's kind of my working model going into this. And... uh, there was a cascade of events. Remember that also that I've been through multiple prior outbreaks. And this is not bragging, uh, but 
uh, folks in the DOD know they can rely on me or used to know that they could rely on me to serve as an interface socket between industry and government. Uh, and I was really good at um, work managing that interface so they could tell me things. You know, Robert, we really need this kind of a capability. And they're not allowed to go out and tell contractors that they need that kind of capability, but they could communicate it to me and I could go assemble teams and bring it back to them and say, okay, here's what this team can do. Here's their capabilities. Does this scratch your itch, basically? And they'd say yes or no, or it needs to be tweaked this way. And I'd write a contract with the team and and the government would get what it needed. And this was all coming from a place of having seen for years and years that there's a small number of very, very large contractors that win these bids again and again and again, and rarely do they have the best technology. And so my building that consulting business was coming from a place of frustration, seeing the government, which by extension is us, Mm -hmm. buying subpar tech, basically, uh, from contractors that were really good at building proposals and knowing how to turn all the proper knobs with the gubbies, but not actually knowing the science that well and knowing the technology that well. So the gubbies were continually getting subpar solutions for their literally billions and billions of dollars that they were spending in the space. So that's kind of where, where my mind was at going sure. into this. And uh, um, I got this call and, and getting back to it just to, to establish legitimacy. So the DOD had asked me to intervene with a company called New Link Genetics that had purchased for $150,000 uh, this product candidate from uh, Canada, from Public Health Agency Canada, um, which was a novel vectored, uh, so recombinant virus-based vaccine for Ebola. And it turned out to be the one that was further along in any development. Uh, this little tiny Ames, Iowa company that that had had a biodefense capability but could never get it funded. They called the project Freebola because no, everybody wanted them to do stuff for free. Uh, that ended up, you know, I brought Merck in, Merck bought the product, that's the licensed Ebola vaccine. Okay, so I've been through this multiple times, flew multiple times, uh, Zika, um, I, and when I got this call from Callahan, uh, I guess now formerly ex-CIA, who uh, I had understood was in Wuhan on January 4th when he called me, uh, he, that's now in dispute, uh, but that was my understanding at the time, saying that there's this novel virus, this novel coronavirus that represents a threat and that I ought to get one of my teams spun up again around this. I did a threat assessment made a decision that once again, like with Zika, there was no way to develop a vaccine in time to really mitigate the risk. And I needed to focus on drug repurposing and that's what I did um, and focused on. And that's, that's a whole story that's not told. It's, it's in the literature, it's in preprints that we can never get published. There's a whole backstory with Pierre Corey and Ivermectin and, uh, you know, starting a journal, special a journal volume in Frontiers for repurposed drugs that then got shut down. It's a whole, none of that's ever been really discussed in podcasts. Everybody always wants to focus on the jabs. Mm-hmm. I got infected in March of 2020, actually in the end of February, uh, when I was at an MIT 
uh, computational drug discovery conference. And um, I was actually staying right across the street from the biotech company where the Boston outbreak happened. And uh, I came home uh, sick as a dog, thinking that I got um, influenza B probably. Mm -hmm. uh, because no one, there was no PR that at the time that there was any virus on the East Coast. Uh, certainly not in Boston. And uh, um, then I'm lying in bed, burning lungs, you know, just feeling like dog breath. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and my wife says, it's just on the news, uh, you know, this company right across the street from where you're staying has had this massive outbreak, and that's probably what you have. And at that point, I'd spent so much time, I'm trained in pathology, I taught pathology to medical students for years, and working with other pathologists and people right at the, you know, we were all just obsessed with trying to make sense out of this virus and the disease. I thought, okay, I'm going to die. It's just a question of how soon. Um, uh, and, um, out of desperation, I, and I was very embarrassed at the time, I did what is really considered a moral transgression in clinical research. I treated myself with some of the drugs that we'd identified through our computer screening and which, um, I personally got relief from, uh, this Pepsid famotidine drug. And that starts that whole Pepsid story. Mm -hmm. Um, but, and we'd already identified it with the computational programs. Uh, but that was kind of my track until uh, a number of things, it was like a cascade of events. It's, you know, we talk about it some in the book, my, in the chapter about my being red-pilled. Sure. Uh, when I got that call from Callahan um, in the beginning of January 2020, I got going with the team in doing the, um, cool mathematical, mo you know, computer modeling, docking, that kind of stuff. Uh, and my wife said, well, I know what I can do. I can write a book basically for our neighbors and, you know, average folk and uh, um, warn them about, about this risk because it wasn't in the press or anything and talk about things they could do. Mm -hmm. And it, it ran, you know, from... Uh, she, she talked about using uh, alcohol wipes when you get in the airplane. She talked about the good, bad, and the ugly of masking and N95s, and this has to be properly fitting. And this, she, she talked about victory gardens. She talked about supply chain problems. Uh, she talked about uh, cleaning in the bathroom, um, all that kind of stuff. And uh, did as a Kindle. And it, uh, in March, she put her heart and soul into it. Um, I wrote a couple chapters and helped edit it, but she busted her can. Got it out in the first week of February with the idea that she could update it because it was a Kindle book. Mm -hmm. And uh, round comes March with a third update, and suddenly Amazon won't let it be updated. And, and we start calling in what's going on and uh, can't get an answer from anybody. Everybody's confused. I don't know, but there's a block on it. Um, and their policy has always been that they'll tell you, you know, um, there's porn or whatever the thing is, sure. right? That, that's forbidden. Uh, and they won't, finally, finally, we get this notice. Um, we violated community standards. And that's all they'll tell us. And there's no appeal. Um, it's to be taken down and that's that. 
And uh, that was the first kind of, you're not in Kansas anymore moment. And then there was a series of others. Uh, this uh, Canadian physician that I spoke with uh, that Steve Kirsch brokered uh, that has since had his, uh, his office has been, you know, kind of stormed uh, by Canadian police. Uh, they've trashed his computer. Uh, he's gone to ground. He doesn't want me to even say his name. But he shared with me up until late one Saturday night what was going on in Canada and how they were deleting any references to any adverse events that he would enter. And he talked about the use of ice cream to entice children that was going on and these kinds of things. And he, and he was pleading with me to somehow intervene with the regulatory authorities in Canada. And I was like, I don't know these guys. If, if it was the FDA, I know who I could call, but I don't know in Canada. I can't really help you. So they were enticing children to get vaccinated? Yeah, exactly. Based on ice cream? So this yeah. is so this is in the... So this, the, this the is timeline. way early. <clears throat> but the, when the vaccines weren't deployed till 2021, first yeah, this, quarter? Yeah, this is right so after right they were deployed, okay? Yeah. Um, and uh, so... So I wake up the next morning and I'm like, I know what I can do. And I wrote a uh, essay that went in trial site news about the ethics, the bioethics of what was being done and the lack of informed consent, et cetera. I think that was one of the first articles kind of pushing that storyline. And that was my, my limited hangout. I could, I could be safe knowing how torturous this landscape was. I could be safe talking about the bioethics because that was something I had expertise in. Uh, it was clearly wrong what was going on. But at the same time, you hadn't come to the conclusion yet that the vaccines were ineffective. And, and I, there was no data about that. Right. I mean, at this time, no, nobody, no, it, it really, none of this, remember Pfizer had done all kinds of stuff to obscure the data and the conclusions. And we weren't even being given access to the data. We were being told to just accept whatever we were being told. Sure. Uh, and, um, and I had early on, because I've been in this community now, you know, pretty much my entire professional life. I had called some people that were involved in, for instance, the University of British Columbia group that made a lot of the, really the true um, enabling advances with the positively charged lipids in their formulations. And um, talked to uh, the lead guy about what was the nature of the formulations, why were they including the polyethylene glycol, um, et cetera, et cetera. And my impression at that point was that there had truly, and I read the literature, tried to catch up on it since I'd left it. My impression was that there truly had been some major advances mm -hmm. and uh, that um, they had empirically, you know, through trial and error, discovered that there were certain structures in these positively charged fats that would cause them to target certain organs. And the, the party line was, among my old peer group, that some of these, when injected into the um, deltoid, sorry about that mic bump, um, would home just to the draining lymph nodes and stay there. And so this was, this was the belief system. And I was part of that community. And I accepted that my colleagues had in fact advance the technology beyond the obstacle that had caused me and my wife to, to drop it and get out of it because it was too toxic. 
um, they had made some significant advances and now it was working. Because otherwise, how could possibly they be moving this stuff forward? Um, so you were aware of like the general potential risk of doing something absolutely. in this field. Yeah. But the supposition was that, oh, well, this passed the this passed through the rigorous tests that this whole they, field they must built have upon. done they must have done all those things I was schooled in that you have to do. Right. And it must have passed. And they must be acting in good faith. They're good people. I've known these people. They've been peers. You know, they're yep. academic competitors, but uh, um, they're not evil intrinsically, uh, to my, best of my knowledge. And uh, they're saying that this is all on the up and up. And then the next big bomb was this Canadian uh, PhD so, so then you get, so just for the timeline, then you get, you get vaccinated in that period. And right there. I'm suffering from long COVID. Uh-huh. And I have to... Uh, From your very first infection, the, the one right. that came I'm in still, early 2020, I'm still a year dogging later. It. I'm still dogging it. I'm wow. just no energy. And mm-hmm. in my belief system is that I'm probably developing pulmonary interstitial fibrosis. Because that was early on what we believed was going to be the endpoint here. Is that basically those of us that had had these infections and recovered would develop... Um, a lung fibrosis that would compromise our air exchange, kind of like emphysema, mm-hmm. and that eventually that would kill us. And remember, it, it, when, that, when I went into this, I'm, I've been a small farmer for most of my life. We're, my wife and I are on our fifth small farm. We, we literally homesteaded it mm-hmm. from, from raw, raw land. And uh, I've kind of always prided myself, I can outwork 20-something, because a lot of it's coming from within. You know, uh, not that I was, I'm not buff like you are, but um, I, I can work pretty hard. And that was just gone. Um, uh, my stamina was shot. Yeah. And uh, I couldn't hike. I've always been a hiker. Um, and, uh, you know, fast forwarding, eventually I got put on ivermectin by a call, another colleague that doesn't want to be named uh, because she lost her license for it. Um, but, uh, and within two days, I happened to be out in Monterey, California, uh, with our younger son and his wife, uh, hiking along the Big Sur. And two days after starting ivermectin, suddenly I was like at the front, Hey guys, let's go, you know, that it had been a long time. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so, so the logic was being promoted that if you took the jab, you get this extra dose of antigen and it would kick your immune system into high gear and it would clear whatever the problem was. So clear the former problem and offer new protection. You were, you were plus, aware, you were aware you, of the natural immunity fo- properties as well. So you yes. knew that you had some immunity, but you were like, look, let's just, just supercharge this again. Yeah, jump, I got my ass kicked by ivermectin's helped out, but let me just... No, I hadn't taken ivermectin at that point. Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. So, so, um, so that plus the fact I was already scheduled to give a talk in France on, on vaccines. And uh, I knew I was going to have to travel a fair amount. It turned out I had no idea how much I was going to have to travel. I mean, last year it was 400,000 miles on commercial air alone. Uh, I mean, I, my travel has just been insane. But uh, that was the logic. Yep. I was going to have to travel internationally. There's no way I could travel unless I took the jab. I had long COVID. In theory, um, this could... I could convince myself that there was some logic 
yep. that that could potentially do something. At the time, there was profound denialism that long COVID even existed. Mm-hmm. You know, the people claiming to have long COVID were gaslit, just like the vaccine damaged were. Um, and uh, so, you know, in, in, and I believed that uh, the problems had been solved. You know, my, my peers had, had uh, reassured me that this was all in the up and up. And I, and I believed that the FDA was acting in good faith. Now, all that came crashing down when Byron Bridal obtained the Pfizer, the technical term is non-clinical dossier mm-hmm. or common technical document uh, that had been submitted in Japan. Most of it was in Japanese, but the tables and figures weren't. This was the document that uh, um, Steve Kirsch displayed, uh, some of the data that he displayed on the uh, Brett Weinstein podcast. Mm-hmm. And for many people, I think it was the first time they ever encountered it. Uh, and um, as I reviewed that, Byram reviewed it in Canada. And then because I'd written this article in Trial Site News, he was aware of me. He contacted Trial Site News, his owner, and said, can you get Malone to look at this thing? And I've spoken to Byram since, and he, he had fear and loathing that uh, this Malone guy was just going to shred his analysis, uh, you know, with all of his expertise. And, mm-hmm. um, and, I, and I reviewed the document, and, and I was so stunned that I was like, this can't possibly be what I think it is. Uh, and I sent it to a more senior regulatory affairs professional that I've worked with for decades. And I, sh- and, and I had him assess it. And he said, yeah, Robert, everything that you said is true. Um, all those deficiencies are valid. And plus you missed this one and that one. And I said, okay, I have to write this up now. You want to have your name on it too, because you've contributed. And he's like, hell no. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with this. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> and so that, that was the next big uh, bombshell mic drop. Moment. And at that point, at that point, were you experiencing the, <clears throat> you'd already been vaccinated at that point, And had you started to experience the, your own negative effects of the so, vaccine yet? So uh, Jill looked in, my wife, Dr. Jill uh, Glasspool, uh, looked into this because, of course, I have the record in my vaccine card. I have to carry my bloody vaccine card all over the place. Um, and the timing of jab two, which is the one that she tracked down, um, the one where I had this hypertension and these other adverse events, tinnitus, um, narcolepsy, POTS, restless leg. Uh, she found out about this, how bad is your batch site and tracked that down. And um, it turned out that I did get one of the known really bad batches from one of the hot, One of the hot batches. Pardon? Like the hot batches I've heard. Yeah, whatever like- you want to call it. That were like uh, one of the ones that are associated with death and disease at a higher risk than the average ones. One of the one of the explanations for this, and I just wanted to check it with you, see what you thought, is Dr. Aditi Bhargava, I had her on my podcast. She says that basically that's just the vaccine that was actually properly stored cold the whole way and was actually functioning to the to the level that it was originally designed to function and they, that created what's called a hot batch because it was actually Okay, that, that is a, so there's another thesis that gets floated that there was an intentional release of control batches that uh, didn't have active material. That I can't buy. But that thesis is precisely the one that I favor. Yeah. Because I know this tech and it is really susceptible to aggregation. 
and a bunch of other phenomena, like for instance, the crystals that so many people have a strong inference about what material they are. But uh, some very sophisticated Raman spectroscopy was done in Germany. Ryan Cole was involved in that. Those crystals appear to be cholesterol crystals. And uh, there's absolutely cholesterol in the formulation. As a matter of fact, I think I published the first paper about using cholesterol in these kinds of formulations. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it appears that the cholesterol is partitioning out of some of these particles and forming crystals. Uh, and that's, that's kind of ongoing research happening in Germany right now about whether or not that can attribute, that can explain some of the adverse events. But absolutely, these things, if they're not stored properly, uh, aggregate. They won't have activity, but they will have more toxicity if that happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is that thesis that you, that hypothesis you just floated, is aligned with with my, uh, let's say, leading hypothesis. But I live in a world of multiple working hypotheses. But I, sure. I so I wouldn't say that's what happened. But I think it's a reasonable, um, it fits uh, what I know without inferring that there was some nefarious, bad acting behavior going on, uh, which I can't rule out, by the way. Sure. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so, so uh, um, the timeline, uh, I, I haven't hunted down the timeline of Byram's uh, reveal and uh, my injury and Jill's reveal of, of the Bad Batch. I know that um, I had, so Byram's, I took the jab before that drop, that document. Uh, I had the damage before that document. Um, and all through this, I had ongoing dialogue with three very senior people at the FDA that were outside of the review branch they were in the office of the chief scientist and the office of the director. And we were all, every week, we were having Zoom calls or Skype calls going over what the latest things were and, and what do we think about what's going on and what the heck is going on in the review branch and, you know, is Peter Marks a decent guy that we can trust or not? All that mm-hmm. kind of insider, gubby stuff. And, uh, um, uh, and I was operating under the assumption that Peter Marks was a, a white hat, uh, the, the guy at FDA responsible for vaccine oversight for review branch. And uh, when I encountered the, this common technical document and I saw what had been done, uh, my inference was I'm still wrapped up in the mindset that the FDA is goofy, incompetent, but not nefarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even though I knew that there's this whole revolving door problem, et cetera, uh, that's just kind Which of- Which is pharma executives for coming from the FDA and back Scott into pharma Gottlieb executives. Scott is yeah. the poster child, right? Former FDA commissioner takes a two-month vacation and becomes a director at Pfizer and then uh, actively manipulates Twitter uh, to suppress- uh, information that's uh, contrary to the interests of Pfizer, including right. from the guy who used to be his boss's boss at Health and Human Services. I mean, uh, you, you can't make up the stuff that's happened over the last three years. It's amazing. But um, so that's that's my model is FDA is goofy, probably doesn't really know what they're dealing with, doesn't really know the tech. Uh, they're encountering this new tech. And Pfizer has managed to pull the wool over their eyes. 
So in good faith, I do two things right around the same time. Through a friend, I set up a teleconference with Nancy Pelosi and her team. Her leading healthcare economist is directly on the phone. So is her leading aide. And I'm told she's off camera. Um, in which I say, guys, can you please get the CDC to analyze both the virus risk and the vaccine risk in an age-stratified way? They're not doing this. We always do this. What the heck is going on? This has to be done to make sense out of that. Of course, we know they still haven't done it to the yeah. present day. And I was given reassurances, oh yeah, I'll look into it, blah, 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 nada. In, in parallel, so you're asking about, you know, this is, this is me sharing my red pill. It's not a moment, it's a gradient yeah, of events. Yeah. Um, and I also uh, write to Peter Marks and I have the, the status, et cetera, to get his attention. And I say, hey, Peter, I'd really like to talk to you about what I've seen in this Japanese common technical document and uh, share with you my insights from that. And so he, he agrees. We do a Zoom. I can, you know, I have it in my calendar still. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and I'm expecting it's going to be kind of scientist to scientist and we're going to get wonky. Uh, and instead, it's him and uh, someone from uh, FDA's public relations division um, sitting in on the call. So it's a three-way Skype or Zoom, I forget which. And, uh, and it's a little strained. And, and, I, and I say, Peter, these are the things I've seen. And I, you know, this, for instance, the use of luciferase, I pioneered that. Okay, I, I know that tech, coal. I pioneered the whole animal imaging, which they use, which is the least sensitive way to detect expression. And I say, this, what, what's been done here is not right. It's, it's absolutely not right. It's not giving you the answer that you assert it's giving you. Etc. So he listens to me and he says, Robert, uh, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, we've received additional documents from Pfizer since. And I've reviewed, the, I've reviewed those and I see nothing in those documents to cause me any concern. And I ask you, uh, basically as a professional favor. Stand up. To, to, to um, not make a big issue out of this and give me time to disclose what we now know. And instead what happens, it, we know, is all that gets buried and Pfizer and the FDA do everything they can to keep it from ever coming into the public sphere for at least 70 years until the court forces them to reveal it. And then we have this treasure trove of Pfizer documents that blows the whole thing open in terms of the adverse event. But basically I got lied to again. And in that treasure trove of documents, we see that, and Ed Dowd talks about this, that there was more deaths in the control group. I mean, there's more deaths in the, in the treatment group than the control group and some cardinal rules about what would actually cause you to pause some kind of treatment. And, and then, been, and been then these, this slow trickle like Maddie DeGary and, and the whistleblower that talks about the clinical site that has been manipulating the Pfizer data, which in my experience, if I had been involved in a clinical trial in a management position and had something like that happen, I would expect to lose the ability to ever run another clinical trial or at least lose the ability to, for five or 10 years. And yet there are no consequences. Mm. 
So you ask about the red pilling. And for me, I came at this uh, in assuming good faith, uh, assuming that, uh, yeah, the government is goofy, frequently incompetent, uh, staffed by people that are paid at 80% of market rate. Uh, and my business is basically finding ways to make it work despite their incompetence. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's kind of my business. Uh, and um, I'm kind of a fixer. It's what I've been doing for, you know, a couple of decades at that point in this space uh, with deep understanding of all the whole tech landscape, in part because I've been brought in repeatedly by NIH to serve as study section chair, chairperson, for the groups that are making technical evaluations of proposals for novel vaccines and other biodefense products in the range of, you know, 80 to $150 million. I've got a track record of having one for my clients, not for me. You know, I'd get my, my standard flat rate on these things of billions of dollars worth of, worth of, worth of contracts. I know this space. Yeah. And, um, and I, I've always assumed that basically the gubbies need a helping hand uh, uh, and and I'm there to provide it in in good faith with the assumption the kind of the working hypothesis is um, you know the working model is they don't like you uh, to be visible and then there's the whole DC mantra if you don't want to be shot uh, don't let them see you so I've kind of been you know, years and years and years of, of staying below the radar, get my work done, being quiet, let other people take the credit for it and, you know, pay, get the money so I can feed my horses, mm-hmm. um, you know, sailing into retirement. Uh, and then this, this shit show starts and, um, at, at, you know, at, and then I get this call from Steve Kirsch, who I it helped out because he'd been so frustrated that he couldn't get any traction on fluvoxamine. Uh, and he, somebody had told him Malone was a guy who understands the system and you can call Malone and Malone will set up the meetings and, and you can get stuff done. So I just did as a favor to Steve uh, trying to solve that. And then we both encountered the uh, um, intransigence of the whole apparatus about repurposed drugs. And there's more to that story. Sure. Um, but... Uh, then out of the blue, I get a call from Steve that I should, you know, I, he wants me to go on a podcast. What's a podcast? Um, mm-hmm. With this guy, Brett Weinstein. And I look up Brett and he's like this uh, high-powered full professor, ex-full professor, uh, evolutionary biologist. Um, and I, I look at a couple of clips and I'm like, okay, this is going to be interesting. This is, uh, you know, going to be the typical academic hard ass that I'm going to have to go in and, and, you know, do a little fencing with. Uh, and, um, and Steve says, you know, we, we got to go out there and talk to him. And, uh, so these three old men sit around this table and talk for what it was two hours. And, and, the and afterwards, you know, the, the view ticker is just going crazy. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I've never seen anything like this in my life. Mm-hmm. I never even knew what a podcast was. Uh, and, and I'm getting calls from vaccine injured people. Yeah. And, um, and as we went into that, Brett turned to Steve and myself and he said, 
okay, are you still sure you want to do this, guys? Because our lives will never be the same if we do this. Um, and he was dead right. And since then, there's one fundamental choice to be a warrior, to be ordinary. And that's the moment. Yeah, that was the moment. And at the time, there was still chatter about the Nobel Prize. Um, I never thought that I, you know, I have a buddy who sits on a committee at the Karolinska um, who knew exactly what I did when I did it. Uh, and I had visited the Karolinska in the early 90s um, and talked to him. Uh, so this whole jibber-jabber about that I was making stuff up and, you know, I didn't do what I really did as they were trying to write me out of history. He was like, no, Robert, the committee knows. They called me, um, you know, don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was, I called him and I said, do I need to somehow manage to mount a press campaign like clearly is being mounted for these other two characters that are trying to get the Nobel? Um, and he said, no, that they've already been evaluated uh, don't worry about it. Uh, we know what you did. Uh, what they did doesn't rise to the level. And, uh, and no, the committee is not swayed by these uh, press campaigns <laughs> and just chill out. So I did. And, but I knew that going into that, you know, Brett made a big deal and other people were making a big deal about the prize. And I was like, it's, you know, there was, I didn't think the probability was that high. And furthermore, I was absolutely not going to self-censor uh, because of that probability mm-hmm. or possibility. Yeah. You, it can't, was, you can't feed a Nobel Prize to your horses anyways. <laughs> and you can't, you can't, um, it, it, and it's not food for your soul. Right. One of, one of the blessings, the twisted blessings of my early life as a scientist, young scientist, in being at the, at the Salk, was seeing all the Nobel laureates that were there. And th- outside of Francis Crick, I can't think of a single one that was happy. Mm. And, and it was, you know, I went through this process. I had a nervous breakdown when I left the salt. Um, I and was diagnosed with PTSD, and I really still have it. Um, there are things that will trigger me. Uh, but I saw what I interpreted, the way I processed what I experienced and what I saw is there's people with holes in their soul. And no matter how much achievement and outside validation they get, they can never fill that hole. Right. Yeah, because they were born with that thing that has a completely full heart and soul. And so when you're trying, the, by the very process of trying to fill it, you're reifying the fact that you have a hole. You know, like it's all, you're already full. So by saying like, I need to fill it, you're just making real the aspect that you're not full. And that's the, that's the psychodynamic. And, and so, you know, with all of the pain for me, psychological pain of, of that in my early youth, uh, um, Having, having had that awareness early uh, allowed me to opt out of a lot of the things that academia does for, to people and to opt in to family and, and father and all of those things. Uh, and my wife and I have always been kind of old souls in a weird way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but... And I think part of it was because she 
was the last child and was a, of, you know, older parents uh, that were immigrants from the UK. Her father was a, a captain in the RAF, uh, Royal Air Force during World War II. Um, but we've always kind of been aware that there's a lot more than the present that you kind of have to keep in mind that you're going to be around here for a while. Yeah. Your life story has got to include your death. And, uh, and that's a, that's a very important thing to keep in mind. Yeah. yeah. So that's, um, I think that, that awareness that this quest for fame can, um, just destroy people. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and it's just not worth it. Yeah. Um, no. So what, if you were to explain to a lay person, you know, let's say you've watched my podcast with Ed Dowd, you're aware that there's, you know, a host of vaccine injuries. Some, many seem to be affecting the heart. Many seem to be affecting the brain. What is actually from the, from the easiest lay person understanding of like, what is actually causing these issues that people are experiencing? And right. then what is the, what is the gamut of other issues people might be experiencing that maybe you're not quite to the level of myocarditis or a stroke. So that's the buried within that question is, um, is there any hope for me if I'm experiencing vaccine damage? And then another layer within that is all of this layers is the metaphor. I, it all mm. comes back to Shrek, right? Mm. The great philosopher, <laughs> <laughs> the ogre philosopher. Um, so the layers. There's the um, the buyer's remorse. I have a spike in my body. What can I do about it? Uh -huh. uh, even if I'm not experiencing symptoms. Uh, so spike protein is what's is what's it's one of the things. One of the things. Okay. The, 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 there is no short answer. I'm warning you. Right. There's no short answer to the question you just asked. Um, it, there, there are multiple lines of data that demonstrate that almost all of the components here have toxicities, none of which were characterized. Okay. The, the obscenity underlying all of this is the absolute failure of the regulatory agencies worldwide, but most particularly the FDA, because frankly, the rest of the world follows the FDA mm. um, to uh, perform their duties. There's, there's a failure to perform their duties here that underlies all of this because the fundamental uh, driver of uh, pharmaceutical industry is you do not ever do anything that the FDA doesn't force you to do because you could get a bad outcome and compromise your product. And so if you're the director of, you know, widgets, or whatever the thing is, the director of mice, I'm, I'm you know, being facetious, but uh, anywhere in the pharma food chain, if you're the guy that did the study that tanks the billion dollar product, um, you're out on the street and good luck getting another job. Right. Okay. So it's the opposite of the revolving door. And so everybody does anything they can to stay away from anything that could cause controversy or could compromise the product. The consequence of all that as a vector sum is an absolutely atrocious process. 
And the only gatekeeper there is the regulatory authorities and their willingness to say, no, you have to do this, even though you don't want to do this and mm-hmm. all of your organizational prerogatives drive towards you're not doing this. I don't care. You're going to have to do it. And all that goes out the door with the revolving relationship here where the regulators now pull their punches because they want to get a job. And they know that even if they trash, if they, if they do the thing that causes Merck's product to uh, flame out because they've said you have to do this study, then Pfizer will never hire them, let alone Merck. Mm-hmm. Okay? So the whole system is compromised by this belief that we don't ever do anything that could potentially compromise a product on its way to being jabbed into your arm or in your mouth, right? Um, and that's, that is the, the true deep underlying evil sin that has caused all of this. But, you know, what's happened here is that um, none of these fundamental tests that should have been performed, like genotoxicity, reproductive toxicology, um, biodistribution, uh, the... Um, uh, pharmacodynamics of, you know, how much, where protein gets made. None of that stuff got done. And one of the things that's supposed to happen is that you verify that each of the separate components are not contributing to a toxic effect and are contributing to the overall benefit of the, you know, the pharmaceutical indication, the, the, the therapeutic benefit. None of that stuff was done. It was all rushed. Okay, it was all like, no, 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 we're going to throw all that stuff away. Everything that we've learned over decades and decades, we're going to throw it right straight in the trash can because this virus is such an enormous threat based on Neil Ferguson's bogus modeling data at Imperial College in the UK. Okay, but the storyline is this thing is such an enormous threat that we have to throw out everything that we know in order to assure patient safety mm. and, and drive forward. So you ask what's going on. The easy one to knock off is spike is absolutely toxic. It's one of the more toxic proteins known. The level of spike protein produced with these gene therapy-based products, I'm parsing, you know, there, there are many vaccines out there. We're just only allowed to have a small number here in the States. And most of those are genetic ones. And frankly, Tony only wanted the RNA ones. He didn't even want the adenovirus ones. Okay, so that's that's that part of it. Mm-hmm. But um, the data, uh, a key paper, uh, Rolkin, I think is her name, uh, Stanford University, March, beginning of March uh, last year. Uh, Cell is the is the journal. So top top lab, top university, top journal. You know, it doesn't get any better. Um, uh, humans. Fine needle aspiration from lymph nodes and bloods, post-jab, both RNA vaccines. The level of spike protein being produced is substantially higher than the levels that you observe after natural infection. Okay, so if spike is a toxin, then suddenly, oh, that makes sense. Why would you see more toxicity with the jabs than you would see with a natural infection? Because you have more spike. Mm-hmm. Okay, simple stuff. Okay. And, and furthermore, what does the spike do? How does spike, it uh, spike has a number? It opens blood brain barriers. It binds to ACE2, which is a key regulatory pathway in the body that controls a whole bunch of aspects of homeostasis. And unexpectedly, I think given the benefit of the doubt, it triggers coagulation in a very odd way. It triggers blood clotting and it can be observed. You can take platelets 
and put them on a glass slide or in any kind of analytic setting and expose them to spike protein and they degranulate, they do stuff that's weird. Platelets don't, platelets being these key non-nucleated components of your blood mm. that regulate blood clotting, among other things. Yeah, so you get okay? a cut, you, your blood clots in that area. And it's and it fibrin, the blood. It's, fi- it's this polymer of fibers. You can think of it as like fiberglass. Right. Um, that is self-assembling. Self-assembling fiberglass fibers come together, block the cut. Um, and then, because you don't want to have these things sticking around in your body all the time, because eventually we just sludge to death, right? Um, they get degraded, mm-hmm. okay, by proteins that degrade them. But those proteins are set up for fibrin crosslinks that are of a certain density and form. And uh, in the presence of spike, something is causing fibrin to aggregate and form these clot-like structures, both micro and macro, ergo, teeny tiny. Mm-hmm. And the big stringy rubbery clots that Ryan Cole tells me feels like a rubber band that are kind of gray that form in humans that are still living if you get to them soon enough and they can be surgically removed and also being observed in cadavers. Now there's this film, Died Suddenly, that has somebody I'm not going to talk about, but um, who has no experience in autopsies, is not a pathologist and interprets um, regular clotting as these kinds of clots, right. okay? But these kinds of clots are very different. Uh, they have this gray um, rubber band-like characteristic. And when they're examined uh, under the microscope, and there's now a small number of pathologists that are doing this, they have a spike protein in them. And uh, they appear to be highly cross-linked and they can't be degraded. And they're also forming, you're, you're an athlete. Uh, so um, what's, this is, we're now moving right out of the cutting edge of, of one school of thought about what's going on here, mm-hmm. okay? Um, is, think about your blood flow. It's coming from your heart under high pressure through the arteries, down to the smaller branching arterioles. Then it goes into the capillary bed, these really small tubes, which is where all the gas exchange and, and the exchange of toxic metabolites, you know, the things that give you the burn, right? Yep. Uh, and um, then those move out into the venules, back the veins and through the body and back to the heart. Okay, so that's kind of the big picture. It appears that you're getting microaggregates on the arterial side of these highly cross-linked fibrin gobs, very small, mm-hmm. that don't degrade. And so the, car- the classic finding with people that are really suffering a lot of this is the high-performance athlete who at rest is sitting there with a the blood oxygen saturation of 98%. They've got good color. You know, and they used to run a, you know, slightly over four minute mile. Um, and now you put them on the track and they cannot pull a 440. And they're, and they're you know, hurt. Mm-hmm. Okay. Their exercise tolerance is shot. Okay. And yet at rest, they have normal oxygenation. Okay. These are people that have constrictive afferent flow into the muscles, into the body tissues because of these small clots. And what's going on, what's right at the front edge right now 
This is this is by way of hope. And I'm I happen to be on one of these drugs. I'm I'm currently completing uh, the FLCCC recovery protocol together with a prote- oral protease, and I'm not advising anybody to take it. Right. But it's an oral protease that's known to act on some of these clots. It's called natokinase. And it's, this is going to degrade just like the body would degrade normal clotting What process. I can tell you is that personally, this is an N of one, so don't take it to mean anything. Sure. Okay. Uh, I have more stamina now than I've had for quite a while. So this, is, so this is a very important message for people who are like, maybe I fucked myself for life. And you're saying, all right, there's a way to undo potentially. And I thought I had fucked myself for life. Right. Okay. I thought I was going to die of pulmonary interstitial fibrosis. I finally went and got a pulmonary function test. And while it's not 100%, I'm still well with the normal range. Yay. Okay. And, and, I, and I was still dogging it. And I went to a, a local doc that I trust that's kind of with us uh, in my area. And um, he did the workup and he said, I'm, I'm going to put you on Pierre Corey's and Paul Merrick's protocol um, with these other agents. And uh, let's see how it goes. So if, I, if I'm getting this correctly, so your long COVID was actually also potentially the natural body's production of these spike proteins, which was slowing you down. The vaccine then created an additional load of these spike proteins, which slowed you down even further and caused even more, you know, almost. Dis- and so these, these odd clots, which can exist in the, like I said, the big form, mm-hmm. these kind of small local forms that are chronic because they can't be degraded, also appear to be forming um, in the brain and in the heart, either from a distant site and then getting blown into that. Right. Okay. Um, so that's obstructive. Stroke. Because the spikes potentially even open the blood-brain barrier to let the clots in? Well, I'm, I'm talking about getting into the small vessels of the brain. Yeah. Okay, that's stroke. That's obstructive stroke. Okay. As opposed to hemorrhagic stroke. Um, and these people that have, the, the cardiologists call them STEMIs, uh, these ST elevation, this is on the EKG, myocardial infarctions that are suddenly, suddenly happening to people in their 30s, people that shouldn't that don't have a history of uh, cardiac plaque, okay? Um, cardiac vessel disease, uh, big cholesterol deposits, you sure. know, kind of stuff that people like me get, mm-hmm. uh, right? Um, uh, they're suddenly coming down with MIs that show the signs of being an obstructive, vascular-driven MI. It's a myocardial a infarction? Yeah, like a heart exactly. Attack. Yeah, so um, th- from some blockage of a vessel. Mm. And what the interventional cardiologists are reporting, this is anecdotal. There's no published study. Okay, this is just what's bubbling up anecdotally because that's the first sign where these, these things happen. Is there with a, an interventional cardiologist is the guy that takes the big long tube that has a little balloon at the end mm-hmm. and kind of a sort of a pointy end and working together with the radiologist threads it down into your heart vessels and can find, it's quite sophisticated, amazing stuff, uh, can find the vessel where the blockage is by using contrast material and poke that little end through that and then blow up the balloon that will push the plaque to the edge of, of the arterial wall. And then they can put a stent in and do other things, okay? And then, you know, suddenly you don't have to have open heart surgery. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's modern interventional cardiology. 
um, in, in a minute. Uh, unfortunately, they're finding with some of these little clots now, it can't poke the tip through. They're too hard. They're too highly cross-linked. There's something weird going on. So that's that compartment. So I get the image of like, you know, Spider-Man throws this fucking little web up and it blocks some other thing in there. So it's, it's like... It's actually a like, good metaphor, what you're talking about, okay? Yeah. Is um, uh, there, there are actually uh, neutrophil nets is one of the th- problems that exists is that um, some of the white cells, when they blow up, when they're responding to infections and damage, they actually do create kind of a Spider-Man net so mm. what you're touching on intuitively um, is, you know, maybe it's the universe channeling through <laughs> you, uh, but, but it has some merit. Yeah. Um, so that's one of the processes, slightly different from what I'm talking about, right. but, but absolutely that also appears to be ongoing. Yeah. So there's a bunch of things that have to do with blood clotting and blocking and obstructing blood flow. And the thing about that is it can affect any part of your body. So the, for instance, they talk about COVID toe, Okay. You can have blockage in in the vessels for your toe. You can have blockage of the vessels of your ear. Mm. You can have blockage in the vessels of your nose. You could have the blockage of vessels in your kidney. Is that potentially what was causing your tinnitus? Some kind of blockage? Unknown what is driving the tinnitus. The tinnitus is one of the very common adverse events. And it's hypothesized to be an inflammatory process. You know, that's like saying... Tinnitus seems like it's not very well known anyways. The treatments for that are limited. Well, Gently put. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, they're anti-inflammatories. Yeah. Uh, so, um, there's that stuff. Uh, the, there's the lipids themselves, the lipid, nanolipid plex is inflammatory, like I said. Um, and you can pull that out of the data and this is different than the spike proteins. Now we're on to a different vector. This is, of, this is the, so the spike protein is the thing that gets made. Yeah. Okay. Then, then to back up in the process, the mRNA that they're delivering is not real mRNA. It's a modified molecule. They call it mRNA and they told everybody that it would degrade within a couple hours. That was all lies. Okay. It's a highly modified molecule that has pseudouridine. This is the Carrico and Weissman patent that they were hoping to get the Nobel Prize for. Okay. Um, this pseudouridine, which is a natural molecule that's placed in mRNA very carefully because it modifies RNA function. But what they do with their process is they put it in every place instead of the regular U, the regular uridine, okay? So um, when you do this, with pseudo, we're still learning what pseudouridine does in RNA. Mm-hmm. What's being manufactured is not a, a real natural RNA, not, not what I had originally envisioned. And this modification makes it so that this M, the RNA-like molecule, among other things, is immunosuppressive, which is one of the reasons they did it in the first place. They were trying to overcome the inflammatory response, mm-hmm. okay? So they, they stuck something in there to shut down the inflammatory response, but this is like a sword that cuts in both ways, right? It shuts down the inflammatory response due to the drug product, but it also non-specifically shuts down other forms of immune response. So the highly pseudouridine modified mRNAs are intrinsically immunosuppressive. Uh-oh, that's a problem. Okay. Um, and uh, it confers really long half-life. 
which is another thing that that study that I was telling you about when they did the lymph node biopsy, that the pharma and the government had told everybody and the, far, and the docs that the RNA just stuck around for a couple hours. It doesn't. In that study, they showed that they could still detect the intact RNA, quote unquote, in people's lymph nodes, 60 days, which is just the longest they tested after injection. So, boom, that, that's another mic drop moment because that means that it's potentially still producing spike protein during that time, mm-hmm. which means that the thesis that the adverse events that Ed and Naomi Wolf and everybody else all over the world that's hunting this are tracking because that's what the CDC will release, they're looking at adverse events within a fairly short window, like a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. and saying if it's beyond that, it's not vaccine-related. It's mm-hmm. just random noise, okay? But if the drug product is still there and potentially still biologically active for up to 60 days later, you got to open that window way up, Yeah. okay? So that means that all the data we have on the adverse events and the deaths that are coming from official sources is bunk. It's garbage mm-hmm. because it's based on a false assumption. Right. Okay. So there's, there's the RNA sticks around a long time. Doesn't get degraded. Like they say, uh, it's intrinsically immunosuppressive. Then there is the complex when you wrap it with these positively charged fats that kind of self assembles and condenses that has toxicity. How do we know that that's toxic? Well, um, Moderna, for instance, in their board of directors reports or in their stockholder reports, revealed data on their phase one studies of their influenza vaccine using the same exact technology. And it has a remarkably high level of adverse events, like grade three adverse events um, when dosed at the level that they're dosing these vaccines, something like 30 to 40% of people. That's a lot. Okay. So that's not, that's flu vaccine is not making spike. So whatever's going on there is causing problems that have nothing to do with spike. So the bottom line is that each one of these layers in this thing that have never been characterized appear to have their own intrinsic toxicology. Uh, And then, you know, and so each of those has these things like, you know, Ryan Cole and now many pathologists and uh, surgical oncologists and general oncologists, medical oncologists are observing um, anecdotally still. These cancers that are recurring that they thought were cured after the jab or they're unusually aggressive. They have very high um, division rates. That's mitotic rate, this kind of stuff. Um, so there's that problem. That's one of the ones that's kind of a, it's like, short-term toxicity, like I go into shock from the polyethylene glycol and I drop dead um, or not. Uh, Then there's this kind of intermediate toxicity, um, the myocarditis, the more severe myocarditis falls into that. Some of the strokes and clotting problems fit into that. And then there's this kind of longer-term delayed wave Mm -hmm. that we're still just beginning to figure out. So what what you've effectively done here, I think, is expand in kind of a technical term the Overton window of what's possible. Oh, it's absolutely what's possible absolutely. from all of the different toxic um, elements I'm, in this. I'm acutely aware of what the Overton window is. Yeah, I learned about it from your book, so <laughs> so it's a fresh word for me to understand. But it's just opening the the realm of possibility of 
what all of these different which, which toxic in good elements. science is what you have to do right right if if you're really trying to be objective about it and not be a propagandist not be a sign not be practicing scientism. scientism yeah exactly yeah so there's a bunch of these things and then the bombshell that dropped last week um which is we've known that there is this problem of uh, reproductive age women and also postmenopausal women that suddenly start having menses after the jab and reproductive age women that have delayed menses or prolonged menses or irregular menses after they take the jab. And uh, um, this was something that was noted very early on by the Orthodox rabbis in New York and New Jersey. And uh, they hear they hold a, a series of testimonies, uh, which I was grateful to participate in. Uh, ambient noise here in in uh, mm-hmm. in Miami. Um, in after which they determined that uh, based on what they had heard and what they were observing, because they so closely tracked menstruation in their in their uh, parish, whatever whatever mm-hmm. one calls it. Uh, that um, children and um, reproductive age uh, women in particular should not take this product, and they really discouraged it. It was actually, in their declaration, illegal. Um, They determined that it would be illegal to take this. And for the general population, they discouraged anyone taking these uh, products. Then we had the FDA and, and the pharma, et cetera, denying that women were having this. And now, last week, we get this bombshell um, from this young uh, physician just a few years out of medical school that has a very senior role at Pfizer. He's uh, um, a director, worldwide director of mRNA uh, strategies, I think is the technical term. <clears throat> so he's like third down from the CEO, Borla. And um, he, he reveals in, in a, you know, admittedly, uh, he's entrapped uh, by Project Veritas to disclose things casually in the context of thinking he's, he's having a date mm-hmm. um, uh, in which he says that uh, Pfizer fully acknowledges that uh, these uh, female reproductive consequences are occurring and that their leading explanation for that is that these products are causing damage to the um, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal uh, gonadal axis, which is to say your endocrine system. Right. And uh, that's something that a lot of the docs that are um, questioning the narrative have speculated might be the case. But to have a senior executive from Pfizer directly acknowledging that that appears to be their leading hypothesis is a huge bombshell because yeah. that 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 then amplifies into your your endocrine system controls your state of mind your your mental state as to whether or not you're depressed it controls your immune function it controls your sex drive it controls your digestion it controls cardiovascular function your endocrine system is crucial to your health and this casual acknowledgement by the senior executive at Pfizer that these products may be damaging that, um, and they'll eventually get around to looking into it. Hmm. 
uh, as if it's some small thing that's only limited to impacting on women's menstrual cycle is, is uh, um, stunning is an understatement to me. Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. And there's two things that I want to cover before you have to get off to the grand adventures that you have here in Miami. So the two things I want to cover, I think we've covered kind of the safety, the kind of the spectrum of what's happening from a safety perspective. You could argue that if the vaccines were incredibly effective and that COVID was as deadly as, as it was originally thought to be, that you could say, look, this is just the cost of this yeah. incredibly if it, if it was effect- Ebola, people if would you, be lining up around the block. Right. If like, all right, look, there's a lot of bad shit that can happen, but it's very effective at, at dealing with COVID. And so the efficacy warrants all of these side effects. And so if you could just touch briefly on the efficacy, which many of us know that, you know, people who've been vaccinated are still getting COVID, you know, quite regularly. Yeah, and it's worse than that. Um, uh, and I don't know what Ed covered. Uh, so there's just citing, uh, as, as my friend Peter McCullough likes to do, citing the specific literature. There's a recent, recent article out uh, from the Cleveland Clinic. It's a very large study group. It's basically all their employees um, that they tracked uh, the incidence of the disease COVID as a function of the number of inoculations. I'm uh, choosing not to call them vaccinations because they don't function to right. protect you from infection. Um, uh, and in what that study showed in a very large population was the more of these inoculations you take, the more likely you are to develop the disease. We also have data that... So Ed that's Ma- showing that it's not only not effective, it's anti-effective. Yeah, we call it negative efficacy, <laughs> okay, um, is the technical term. Yeah. Uh, or negative effectiveness. That's This is how we parse words in vaccinology. Uh, um, effectiveness is uh, what happens in the community, and efficacy is what we measure in a clinical trial. Right. Uh, so in this case, it would be efficacy that's being measured, but the truth is the effectiveness goes negative about two months after you take the jab, which is why at one point there was this chatter that we should all get boosters every two months. Which then increases the toxicity, increases the amount of spike because proteins. It's, because it's additive or, or right. multiplicative. We don't know precisely. Uh, so, so there's absolutely solid data that the more inoculations you take, the higher the probability that you'll develop the disease. That's one thing. There's data from all over the world, even in the face of all of the data manipulation that's happened, uh, that um, the, and, and it's an increasing trend as we get further out, that uh, the majority of individuals that are being hospitalized are the vaccinated. They are no longer the unvaccinated. The truth is that we currently have, if we're gonna call it an epidemic, an epidemic of the vaccinated in terms of the hospitalized disease. And you see this from nation after nation after nation. Yeah, Ed has a lot of those different different graphs of the point of mass adoption of the, quote, inoculation. Right, and then there's that correlation. And then then the amount of deaths and 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 another. So there's a a, a, a physician scientist uh, that we interact with uh, from the Netherlands uh, named Theo Schuters that has done a fascinating study where he's 
uh, dug into the data in, in, that, in that region, Belgium and the Netherlands, they tend to do vaccination campaigns and particularly for the elderly, which are considered to be the high risk group. The truth is that um, the average age of death with COVID is higher than the average age of death, just to put a stake in that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we're subjected to enormous amount of fear porn yeah. around all of this. Okay. Just a huge cloud of propaganda. But he's dug into looking at the uh, data on the vaccine campaigns in the elderly, 61 or 62 and above is what they do because they go through the nursing homes and other things. And uh, then from a separate government data base, getting mortality in the elderly and lining up these two data sets. And like what Ed is showing with the insurance actuarial data, he shows that repeatedly you'll see a spike in the vaccine campaigns. And then following that by a couple of weeks, you'll see a spike in all cause mortality in that same cohort. Okay. So there's just data set after data set after data set. All of the, I'm going to get wonky. All the vectors are pointing in the same direction. Okay. This is bad. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's not random. If it was, if it was random noise, you know, some things would be pointing this direction. Some things would be pointing that direction and, and you wouldn't be able to make, you know, you'd have, you'd have to cherry pick the data to make your point if you wanted to make anything. But when, when you see this all excess, all cause mortality data, all driving in the same direction, all with this correlation having to do with onset of, of inoculation. That's the, the, in any sane person, any sane regulator that wasn't compromised by mass formation mm-hmm. or hypnosis or whatever we want to call it, or Daenerys mm-hmm. uh, would say, hey, no, we got to stop this until we figure this out, yeah. right? Because people's lives are at stake, right. okay? Uh, but ain't none of that happening. Um, and except for in some European nations, and that's why I mentioned early in our talk that there's some hope that the UK may wake up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, not the US right now. Um, although the uh, White House is saying they're going to stop the uh, emergency declaration. Um, I think it's May 11th. Um, just put out an essay about that uh, yesterday. But... Um, so uh, we, we absolutely see this uh, pattern. And the other one that's buried within this, the FDA had long warned before the licensure even was granted or the EUA about um, antibody-dependent enhancement. And there's some evidence that there's some of that going on. It's very hard to pull that out of the data to tease it out, that phenomena. It's very technical. It's hard mm. hard to do those studies to demonstrate antibody dependent enhancement. If it's happening, it's not classical, like you see in dengue. And I don't okay. I don't necessarily understand what, what antibody that is. dependent enhanced. So there's a, there's in the in the world of vaccinology, there's a, a cluster of things that we would call vaccine enhanced diseases that are the vaccinologist's nightmare. Mm. And the worst example, the one that we all, everybody cites, is the studies done in the 1960s with respiratory syncytial virus, which, by the way, all evidence suggests it was a lab leak. We didn't used to have RSV in the population. Probably jumped out of a primate colony near Bethesda. It's one leading hypothesis, just to put a stake in that one. Right. Okay. 
RSV didn't used to exist. Then it did. It kills preemies and newborns. And uh, so they wanted to come up with a vaccine that they could give. And, uh, and they used classical vaccine technology where they purified the virus and inactivate it with formalin and then gave it back to the kids. And lo and behold, when they did the clinical trial, more kids died that got the vaccine when they got infected with RSV than the ones that didn't get the vaccine. Okay, bad news. We killed your product, Dr. Smith, killed children. Okay, that is like, if you're, you don't want that on your CV. Sure, sure, sure. For sure. Um, uh, but that's what happened. So it's like the nightmare is vaccine-enhanced disease. One form of vaccine-enhanced disease uh, is antibody-dependent enhancement where you generate antibodies from the vaccine and they don't completely prevent the infection. They're not good enough for whatever reason. There's a number of reasons, okay? But they can grab the virus and because an antibody is kind of like a fork, it's got tines, that's the part that binds the thing that it binds to. And then it's got a kind of a tail like the handle of the fork. Mm -hmm. And that tail has functions. And one of them is that it binds to white blood cells called macrophage that have receptors for that back end of the fork. And that can cause those cells to get infected with a virus because it's bringing it close to them that otherwise couldn't infect that type of cell. Okay, And then if that type of cell, macrophage, will support that replication, suddenly you've gone from having the normal range of things the virus can infect to that plus white cells that happen to migrate all over Mm. your body. Mm. Bad news. Okay, you get vaccine-enhanced disease. And this was the historically the big problem with coronavirus vaccines. You never built a coronavirus vaccine for humans ever before that worked for a Tinker's Dam, and only a couple for veterinary. And there's a lot of coronaviruses out there um, because of this problem. It's one of the reasons why in my initial assessment, I said, are you kidding? Develop a vaccine for this thing with the history of that? No, let's focus on repurposed drugs. Right. Okay. But that's not what Tony wanted to do. And that's not what the government did. Tony being Anthony Fauci. Uh, And that gets us to the present. But um, so there's a a number of these types of vaccine uh, enhanced disease phenomena. And the one in this case that's really well documented, multiple studies, top labs all over the world, studies going back to that one that I just referred to from Stanford and many others, is something called immune imprinting, which, by the way, is a problem with influenza vaccines also. And the short version of that is that your immune system remembers the last battle really good, okay? And if it now encounters uh, the Blitzkrieg and all it remembers is uh, Flanders Fields, mm-hmm. following the metaphor, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it gets overwhelmed. It can't cope with the Panzers right. and the Luftwaffe, okay? If you, when you first get exposed to a coronavirus and when you first get jabbed with this spike protein from an ancient, from the Wuhan strain that no longer is in circulation anywhere in the world. Right. Okay. Which is another big problem with the efficacy. And I don't want to open that bracket because we're running out of time, but basically. It teaches, so your, your immune system gets taught to respond to something that doesn't even exist anymore. 
And then when the new pathogen, the evolved immune escaping virus comes in, your immune system reacts as if it's the old virus. That's called immune imprinting. That is clearly happening. And the data uh, from multiple laboratories showed last summer that if you took a strategy like what they've taken with the boosters, what you're mostly going to do is make that immune imprinting problem worse. Yeah. And lo and behold, people are starting to say, oh, look, what's happening? We're having immune imprinting problems. And then, so take someone who's never gotten vaccinated. My original, I've had COVID twice. The first time I got it was pretty early on. And it's, it was bad. It wasn't as bad as, you know, yours or anything, but it was, it, it was a fucking, it was a fucking nightmare for a couple of days. It is, you know, not enough to scare me, but it was like, wow, this is, this is something really bad. And then subsequently, when was the second, when was your second hit? uh, The second one was probably 2022 first quarter, maybe March, 2022. That was probably Omicron. Yeah. So that's, and that was, that was the Omicron time. You missed Delta. Delta was a stinker. Yeah. So I think I got the original one and then I got the yeah, Omicron. Wuhan one with a, with a booster of Omicron. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're probably about as good as you're going to get at this point, my friend. Yeah. You, 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 have, you probably have, unless you have some immunodeficiency, a very broad-based uh, integrated immune response that is to multiple antigens, not just to spike, and uh, is has basically been boosted by your Omicron hit right. um, and uh, um, will be a complex mix of both T-cell antibody and learned innate immunity because now we're learning that what we thought innate immunity was, this ancient immune system, actually also has some learning and memory that, it can, hap- that can happen with it. So you're probably sitting in the catbird seat right now and absolutely should not take the jab, in oh, my yeah. opinion. That was not, not, even a, not even a thought. But because fundamentally what I saw was, all right, the first one was bad. The second one was un- just mildly uncomfortable. And, and so the, the arc for me in my journey was, and it seemed like, oh, Omicron actually, by the time you get there, if you haven't had this kind of vaccine uh, accelerate, you know, disease acceleration process, like it's actually going to get easier. It's going to get easier ultimately to handle, and, and except I, if you've done some intervention. Not to, not to crow, uh, but I will. Um, this is what I said two Christmases ago on the Laura Ingram show. I mean, I have taken some risks through this where I said, I think this is going to happen. Like I gave sworn testimony in the Texas Senate that immune imprinting was going to be a problem and that these uh, boosters uh, were the uh, absolute bad idea. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's a stake in the sand. I said that. And I also said on Ingram uh, two Christmases ago that Omicron looked to me, based on the data coming out of South Africa, that it's going to act like a natural live attenuated vaccine. Mm-hmm. And, w- and we're, it's, it's the closest thing to a Christmas present we could have right now. Right. Um, which shocked a bunch of people, shocked Laura, apparently. Um, uh, but that's how it's played out. Yeah. And the thing about all of that, not to, to I'm not, not saying I'm a genius or uh, um, uh, 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 some sort of sage prophet. All of this stuff could be easily figured out by anybody objectively looking at the data. 
what a scientist, it sh- not a devotee of science. Right. It, 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 we didn't have to have this, have this. This is the thing that I, I find so potent about just Malone sitting here observing the world and others, Gert von Debasha and so many others, okay? Sitting here observing the data coming in saying, hey guys, better watch out for this. Um, I saw a great meme the other day, uh, three rowboats going down the stream and there's a guy standing on the, on the edge of the stream and he's saying, there's a fall over there. And one of them is saying, where's your tinfoil hat? And the other one says, what a conspiracy theorist. And the other one's saying, show me the data. What's the citation as he's going over the falls? I kind of feel like that guy right. on the edge of the river. Right. You know? Yeah. Um, what a weird world. So in the, and again, compressed for time, want to let you go here. For people who have just a message of, of hope, for people who have taken the vaccine, for people who might be even more in fear, actually, having listened to this, which is unfortunately is part of the process. You have to go from the pre-tragic, the government's looking out for us, Pfizer's looking out for us, this is going to help, this is the pre-tragic state. Then you enter, this podcast may have pushed people into accepting the tragic state, which is like, fuck, this thing is fucked. You know, what are we going to do? And then there's a move to go from the tragic to the post-tragic of like, all right, how do we accept this? How do we move on? And how do we mitigate the damage as best we can? you know, from here forward. So a message of hope to anybody yeah. who's taking so the vaccine. So I'm, I'm, my friends, I'm traveling that journey too. Um, I've been damaged. So many people have. Uh, there's a small number globally, small number of physicians and scientists uh, working to try to understand what's happened to so many of us. And there's, there seems to be progress. And mm-hmm. my own experience is that I'm feeling better. Yeah. Uh, I had to change a number of things. I went on a keto diet. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm having to modify, you know, lifestyle. Uh, um, lose weight for sure. I'm already on all the supplements, vitamin D, zinc, um, mm-hmm. magnesium, all that stuff. Uh, I think that, that it's, it's absolutely in everyone's interest to get their vitamin D levels checked. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't let, if, you're, if your physician says, no, I'm not going to do that test, find another doc. Right. Um, uh, and, because uh, that happens. Uh, and, um, and don't lose hope. Yeah. And, and don't, it's so easy to feel helpless and be a victim. And you don't have to. Um, I, I refuse to be a victim. And God knows they've thrown enough fecal matter at me, <laughs> uh, but I'm still standing, yep. right? Where there's a whole bunch of us that have just been gaslit and harassed and treated like dirt. And um, some have chosen to hide, but most of us are still standing. And there's uh, some of us that have actually gotten stronger for the experience. Mm. And... Uh, you know, to, to loop back to an earlier part of our conversation, you can choose to be a warrior. Yeah. Well, it's an honor to stand with you, my warrior brother. And, uh, thank you. It's, we, we talk about all this and, and there's a, there's a way that you can suppress the emotion of like the gravity of it, you know? And then sometimes it just fucking like yeah. it hits me, you know, blows you open. It just blows you open. Yeah. And, and, um, and so just, you know, I'm, I'm here to the end. This is, what I, this is what I'm here for. It's what I'm built for. It's what I came for. And I know you're of the it's same. It's a battle plot. worth fighting. 
It is. It is. And so, and so here <laughs> and we it's, are. And COVID is just the edge. Yeah. It's yeah. way bigger. No doubt. No doubt. Well, thank you, brother. I appreciate you so much. Thanks for all your work. Thanks for spending time with me. Absolutely. And thanks, everybody, for tuning in and listening. Much love. Thanks for tuning into this podcast with Dr. Robert Malone. The topic is heavy and hopefully it's just expanded the way that you actually view and understand the complexity of the world that we find ourselves in now. I love you guys and I'll see you next week.